Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Monogram at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. Just a heads up, the following episode discusses transphobia, physical violence, sexual assault, and police violence. Take care while listening. Do you remember where you were when Orange is the New Black premiered back in the sweltering summer of 2013? Well, I do. I was a fresh graduate from the journalism program at the University of Georgia, stomping the streets desperate for my first real adult job. The new show was a respite from my worries, and I streamed episode after episode, binge-watching for the very first time, thanks to a fledgling platform known as Netflix. Set in the fictionalized minimum security prison in upstate New York, one headline called Orange is the New Black, the most important TV show of the decade. And all the viewers, like me, who watched that first season in a single weekend, were also witnessing a breakthrough in representation. I remember receiving an email from Nick Adams at GLAAD. This is when I was working the LA Times. And he just wanted to let me know about this new show that he thought would be pivotal, right, in the conversation about diversity on screen. Remember pop culture critic of our times, Trayvell Anderson? I am a journalist, a podcaster, an authoress of We See Each Other, A Black Trans Journey Through TV and Film. In Trayvell's tome, they credit Orange is the New Black with encouraging millions of people to empathize with women of color behind bars. And it was a show that boasted having a Black trans woman, actress Laverne Cox, starring as a key character. 
Her role as Sophia Bursett transformed how a mainstream audience understood the experiences of incarcerated trans women. And perhaps this representation affected how stories like these are seen. In the real world, Laylene was dehumanized as she shuffled through the criminal justice system, passing in front of courts and judges, correction officers, and even doctors. So many trans people are treated this way in life and after death. They become defendants, detainees, statistics, issues to be dealt with, rather than people to be cared for. That's why Laverne's role sticks out to me, because it's an attempt to break that mold. When we humanize a character like Sophia Bursette, we're being presented with an opportunity to humanize real people, too. People like Laylene. I'm Raquel Willis, and this is Afterlives. Episode 3, All That Is On Rikers. We live in a world in which the majority of people still feel like they've never met a trans person. And so therefore, all of the information they're getting about trans experiences is from TV or in movies. Seemingly overnight, Laverne Cox became a lightning rod for transgender representation on TV. Her role and her refreshingly dignified articulation of her experiences landed her on the cover of a now iconic Time magazine issue titled The Transgender Tipping Point in 2014. And so we got to see a journey with her character. By the time Orange is the New Black ended, the character of Sophia Bursette was released and she was a hairdresser in her own salon. Sophia doesn't rebut every trope out there, but she does have main character energy and was portrayed with complexity and nuance that the world had rarely, if ever, seen extended to a Black trans woman on the screen. We're not in prison anymore. This is Sophia in her salon after her release. We can do whatever we want, be whatever we want. She's talking to Taylor Schilling, a.k.a. Piper, the show's protagonist. Yeah, but you can't pretend that prison just didn't happen. No, but I'm not going to spend the rest of my life looking back on it either. I did my time. I'm looking forward now. So we love when we can get complete, long, drawn-out narratives like that, but the reality is we don't often get that. Our characters are often sidekicks. We're there for comedic relief. We're there for some sort of maybe two-episode arc. You might think some 10 years since Orange is the New Black premiered that we'd be seeing more nuanced portrayals of trans life. And there are some great examples out there. Shout out to all of the amazing trans women of color on Pose, as well as actors like Brian Michael Smith, Isis King, Elliot Page, Bella Ramsey, and Jamie Clayton, as well as OGs like Alexandra Billings. 
But by and large, trans stories and talent remain overlooked and harmful stereotypes persist. Movies and TV shows are often priming people to believe that trans lives don't matter. One way that happens is by associating trans people with violence. A GLAAD media study found that at least 20% of trans characters were cast as killers or villains in their storylines on TV between 2002 and 2012. And think about some of the films we uphold as tentpoles of cinema. In the Academy Award-winning film, Silence of the Lambs, the film's villain, Buffalo Bill, is a cross-dressing killer. The film makes gender nonconformity a spectacle and something to be feared. For audiences over the decades, these characters have been conflated with real trans experiences. I always say that the reason why people today believe wrongly that trans folks are villains or that we are trying to replace women or that we are trying to endanger women is because they first saw it on screen. The flip side of the serial killer stereotype is the trope of the nameless trans victim. Glad found that at least 40% of trans characters on TV screens appear as victims of violence. If you watch Law & Order SVU, or any of the Law & Orders, actually, you know the trans person is usually not named. They are dead already before the show starts. Those types of representations and ideas about trans people have been kind of normalized on our screens. Folks have kind of internalized a lot of that in terms of how we move through the particular world. These victims don't have storylines, and these portrayals don't speak to trans people's full humanity. Trans characters are turned into objects, simply devices for people to ignore, while the fictional world continues all around them. And I see that in our real world, too. I saw it as a community organizer, even years before Laylene's demise. Despite numerous deaths and murders, the stories of trans women rarely drew attention outside of the trans community. They were ignored and cast aside by police, politicians, media, and the general public. The fullness of our lives goes unrecognized, and the tragedy of our deaths is rarely met with justice or accountability. When we're talking about media representations, if all you've ever seen of trans people on screen is rooted in our tragedy and our trauma and our death, it becomes a normalized thing then for you when you hear about another trans person being killed. You don't even register it because you've spent your entire life seeing trans people be killed on TV and in movies. These dehumanizing portrayals impact how we, as real-life trans people, see and regard ourselves, too. 
Laylene had dreams of becoming a vet, but going back to school wasn't something easily available to her. As she grew up, her hopes seemed to clash with a harsher reality. Her circumstances as a trans woman of color, struggling with mental illness, and frequent incarceration were barriers to her success. That's why the 360 view of Sophia's life on Orange is the New Black was so refreshing. We see her aspirations and her struggles. Her suffering behind bars can be hard to watch. Some think it's totally uncalled for. But when I look at it alongside Laylene's story, I see some truth in it. There's a scene in the show in which they are denying Sophia her medication. I want to see a doctor. And she has to basically fiend some sort of insanity in order to be taken seriously. You can't go to the clinic unless it's an emergency. This is an emergency. Yeah, well, we don't see it that way. And she pops the head off of a bobblehead or something like that and swallows it. to force them to give her the medical attention that she requires. I'd like to report an emergency. The denial of routine and emergency health care is a major risk for trans women behind bars. And we know Laylene didn't get adequate care while in jail. Otherwise, she would have survived. One survey found that more than a third of trans people who were taking hormones were prohibited from doing so while incarcerated. And it makes me think about all the stories that we know and have known for some time about trans women who have to fight to be affirmed, supported, taken care of, even as the world or the broader society might have disposed of them because they're incarcerated. There's no need to dramatize the horrors of incarceration. It's horrific as is. And Laylene wasn't living in the primetime prison of Orange is the New Black. She was doing a bid at one of the most notorious jails in the country, Rikers Island. Another inmate has died on Rikers Island. Why are so many people dying in New York City jails? Rikers Island has been a national embarrassment. Advocates say conditions at New York's Rikers Island are literally killing prisoners. It is a stain on our city. The immediate solution right now is decarceration, and the ultimate solution is closure. Rikers Island is not just the setting of this story. It's a character in itself. Rikers is a literal island in New York's East River. With one bridge and a single public bus that takes people on and off the island, its isolation is starkly contrasted with the rest of the city. Takeoffs and landings from LaGuardia Airport across the river are the view from many cell windows. After New York City bought the island in the 1880s, the land was expanded to over 400 acres. And the city used it for two things, garbage and debtor's prisons. Debtor's prisons were essentially workhouses where people were held until they could pay off money they owed. It was about 50 years after the city acquired it 
that Rikers started to look how it does today. Rikers Island is a jail, not a prison. This is Tiffany Caban. She's a former public defender who now represents Rikers, which is a part of her district on New York City Council. Rikers Island is in the district and that people are trapped there. People live there, but they're caged there. In total, there are eight jails on Rikers Island today. The way Rikers functions now isn't so different from the debtors' prisons in the 1800s. That's because most of the people there are incarcerated simply because they can't afford bail, because they can't pay their way out. The vast majority of people on Rikers Island, they've been accused of a crime. They, you know, have not been convicted of a crime. They are there pre-trial, constitutionally proven to be innocent, right, until proven guilty. About 85% of people in Rikers are in this position. They are being held pre-trial. That's why Leilene was there. The rest of the Rikers population is serving a sentence of less than one year or waiting to be transferred to a state prison. The thousands of people incarcerated there are living without access to resources. With all the mistreatment that goes on, there's one more thing you need to know about Rikers. Rikers Island is the largest mental health provider in our state. Let that sink in for a second. Rikers Island is where we are choosing to house mentally ill people in New York. Half of the Rikers population has a mental health diagnosis, and just over 15% have what's called a serious mental health diagnosis. Leilene was a part of this group because she had schizophrenia. And for a lot of reasons, she should have never set foot there. Stepping foot on Rikers Island has been widely acknowledged a, a potential death sentence in a state where we have outlawed the death penalty because we consider it cruel and unusual punishment, yet people who have not been convicted of a crime are facing a death sentence the second they are sent to Rikers Island. There's no doubt about that. Of course, we want to know what Rikers Island actually feels like on the inside. So when you come in to Rikers Island, they do this thing called bullpen therapy. One of the people we talked about this with was Kristen Lavelle. They literally put you in a pen. You'll remember Kristen from our last episode. She directed the Stroll documentary on HBO and spent much of her 20s in and out of Rikers. She told us about what happens when you first arrive as a detainee. I would be the only trans woman in a cell with like a hundred other men, and we're all on top of each other. I've been attacked numerous times in those situations. People are tired because we've been in this cell cramped up together for like 12 hours, waiting to be housed. The situation is dirty. It's disgusting. There's no blankets. You're literally on the floor. <sighs> Sleeping on the floor during bullpen therapy is still the norm as people wait to be housed. And the jail's conditions remain abysmal. Oh, my God. It was terrible. It was dehumanizing. We'll learn more about issues that Leilene and other trans people have faced at Rikers later in this episode. But for now... It's important to understand that Rikers is rife with trans misogyny and transphobia. 
it's no secret, especially if you've been part of the Rikers Island community, how correction officers and inmates feel about trans people. They made sure to make it very difficult for trans people to survive in that environment. I'm a Black non-binary trans person, and almost all of the people on Rikers that I've worked with that are LGBTQ were Black and trans. We also spoke with Robin Robinson, who was a social worker at Rikers. And I'm like, this could be me. Robin worked in the LGBTQ plus affairs unit that was formed after Laylene died. But they left just a year later. All the systematic oppression you can think of that exists in this country lives on Rikers Island. You know, this is the culture of white supremacy. Like, I'm just going to be blunt. There's the systematic racism, systematic homophobia and transphobia, sexism, you name it. All that is on Rikers. Nearly 90% of the city's incarcerated population is Black or Hispanic. And there's a culture of defending these systems, right? If a staff is acting inappropriately, being sexist, homophobic, whatever, staff will defend that person. They will defend each other to death. Nobody wanted to admit defeat. It's like, this is not working. Kel Savage worked with Robin in the LGBTQ plus affairs unit. It was so dysfunctional. She also struggled and resigned within a year. The sheer dysfunction is mind-boggling. And I was honestly so many times waiting for a federal takeover because these people are lost. They do not know what they're doing. At Rikers, dysfunction doesn't simply mean disorganization. It means violence. It means people are dying. And that was extremely distressing for Kells and Robin. We would try to bring up this case. It was falling on deaf ears, and then another person would die. And then another person, and then another person. There's a reason people say there's a humanitarian crisis at Rikers. And we had one individual, a gay man that hung himself, died by suicide. And when the corrections officers showed up, their protocol was to pepper spray. So they were spraying a dead man that was hanging. That too was met with silence. She heard staff talk about it just one time. I heard one individual like, Jesus, this like motherfucker had to like kill himself because they were frustrated with the people that were trying to find out what happened. It was just to this point where people were dehumanized, like completely dehumanized. This is where Laylene will end up. It's where she'll die. After the break, we find out why Laylene was sent to Rikers in the first place. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. 
cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to Afterlives. With all these conditions at Rikers now so vividly in our mind, I wanted to know how Laylene ended up here. Well, it started in August of 2017. Laylene was arrested in a sex work sting by undercover NYPD officers. She was charged with prostitution and possession of a controlled substance. During her arrest, an officer allegedly found a pipe in her pocket which contained crack cocaine. These charges were both misdemeanors. Because her case stemmed from a sex work arrest, she was sent to Manhattan's Human Trafficking Intervention Court. So Human Trafficking Intervention Courts, or HTICs, in New York City, they're specialized courts that were created in 2013 Rachel Swanner is the research director at the Center for Justice Innovation. They're located in each of the city's five boroughs. As part of a study she conducted on New York's sex trade, she also researched these courts, which focus on prostitution-related arrests. So these courts were created to mitigate 
some of the harm that trafficking victims experience going through the criminal legal process. Instead of going to jail, people who go through these courts are referred to court programs and nonprofits that offer things like yoga and psychotherapy. On a first offense, there's a requirement of completing five of these sessions. But Rachel says there are flaws to this approach, namely... Many of those who met that definition of trafficking did not apply the term to themselves or their own experiences. They didn't consider themselves sex trafficking victims. And, you know, this suggests that while sex trafficking may be a legal concept that's useful to prosecutors and advocates and politicians trying to curtail it, it didn't have as much currency as a meaningful identity category. Sex work is just not understood by these systems. They treat sex work as a problem to solve, not as a means to survival. Or in some situations, just the job that some people actively choose. And the quote-unquote solutions these courts put in place just aren't sufficient. A lot of these issues that are driving them into the sex trade are structural, poverty, houselessness, and you don't solve those issues with five social service sessions. But Laylene didn't complete her sessions. Laylene not doing the services, or sex workers not doing the services, is common. This is Jared Trujillo. He's an associate professor at CUNY School of Law. When we interviewed him, he was also the policy counsel for the New York Civil Liberties Union. He knows there are good reasons why people like Laylene don't fulfill court requirements like this. It's common because oftentimes the reason that people are doing, especially street-based sex work, is because they're living at the margins, because they have a lack of access to funds, because they have a lack of access to time, uh, because they're worried about interacting with the system, because the systems that they've interacted with, whether they be foster care or the penal system, are incredibly transphobic to the point of being dangerous to their ability to continue breathing. Over time, in addition to not completing sessions, Laylene stopped showing up to court entirely, and things got more complicated for her. Fast forward to 2019. Laylene was arrested again. And what happened is really unclear. We only have very basic information. This is the lawyer who sued the city after she died, David Shanus. I think it was an unlicensed taxi driver who accused Laylene of assault, consisting of biting him on the lip. David says he and the family always had a lot of questions about that. Because that is a very strange way to assault a person. It almost seems more consistent with an unlicensed taxi driver who is trying to perhaps exact a form of payment that the rider was not willing to give. Basically, David thinks the driver was forcing himself on her. She didn't like that, so she bit him. It's really speculation, but there were always major questions about the assault charge. And in any case, it was not a serious charge that had bail set on it and that should have kept her in jail. The judge set a $1 bail for the taxi arrest, and it almost looked like Laylene would go free. But when the judge saw her legal history, missed court dates, avoiding mandated sessions, 
that's when everything went south. This judge wasn't part of the Human Trafficking Intervention Court, but they were supposed to adhere to the court's policies, which should have prohibited Laylene from going to jail. Despite this, the judge still decided to set bail for the sex work arrest, and she couldn't pay. $500 bail, without a doubt, that was her on-ramp to Rikers Island. $500 bail, she could not buy her freedom, and so instead she was tortured and killed. That's council member Tiffany Caban again. So bail exists for one thing and one thing only under the law, to ensure somebody returns to court, to ensure that somebody who has been accused and charged with a a crime but is presumed innocent returns to court throughout the proceedings. Tiffany says at its core, bail is a wealth-based system. It creates two systems of justice for people, one for the poor and one for the wealthy. She says there are people who can afford to pay bail and fight their case from home. And there are those like Laylene who have not been convicted of a crime, but have to await their court proceedings from Rikers. This started to change in 2015. Mayor Bill de Blasio reformed bail policy for the city. And this was a big deal for reducing the Rikers population. And the only way to really reduce the violence on Rikers Island is to get people off of that island. This created some momentum. And in 2018, the district attorneys in Manhattan and Brooklyn agreed to not seek bail for most non-felony cases. In 2019, New York State passed a law limiting bail but it didn't go into effect in time to help Laylene. What's tragic to me about the bail situation... David Shainis, again. ...is this case happened right after a, a huge conversation in New York State about problems with the bail laws and... Between the DA's decision in Manhattan and the policy of the Human Trafficking Intervention Court... It's heartbreaking that Laylene's bail was still set. Why they sought and got bail set on Laylene's case is a question certainly nobody ever answered for me, and it's a question I never stopped asking, but I don't think many people wanted to have that conversation. Maybe without that $500 bail, Laylene would be alive right now. My name is Kate McMahon. My pronouns are she, her. Kate McMahon investigated Laylene's death and sees bail reform as a part of her legacy. I think the story that her death tells about bail, particularly at a time where bail reform is under attack. Kate says today they're trying to roll back the gains made by bail reform. The 2019 law took bail off the table for a lot of cases. This was a big win. But as soon as that law was signed by the governor, Backlash hit hard. Legislators have been rolling back the law ever since. And so I think her memory really serves as an important kind of guide for some of these battles that we're still fighting to reform the system that's so broken and so dangerous and so violent and dehumanizing. It's important to acknowledge that the system Laylene was caught in 
worked exactly as it's designed. It dehumanized her. It didn't consider the circumstances of her life. It punished her for being poor. And it cost her her life. We'll be right back. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees, every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck. Like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrified horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. Welcome back to Afterlives. Laylene's story with the carceral system is a long list of what ifs and should haves. But she ends up going to Rikers. It was April of 2019. After being unable to post bail, she was immediately transferred to the custody of the Department of Correction, or the DOC. This department runs Rikers. From here, Laylina's bust across the bridge onto the island where she would spend the last seven weeks of her life. She always made sure she checked in with me. 
always made sure she called and she always had a story to tell. Meanwhile, her family was totally in the dark. She wasn't calling in. This is her sister, Melania Brown. Um, now we know that she's suffering from mental health issues. She's suffering from seizures. She says eventually Laylene did call her mom while she was incarcerated, but didn't want her to come visit. She wouldn't tell mom where she was at. She wouldn't say mom will always ask and Laylene will always be like, well, it's a horrible place and I don't want you coming here. Laylene was being held at the women's jail at Rikers called the Rose M. Singer Center. In her first two days, Laylene went through many intake processes. She had medical and mental health screenings, and she made the DOC aware that she had a seizure disorder. From here, she was moved to the transgender housing unit. This transgender housing unit was created so that... That's Robin Robinson again, who says this unit was supposed to be a safe space for her. And for good reason. Trans folks are at a higher risk of being sexually assaulted and physically assaulted. And that is what we were seeing a lot. One study estimated that more than a third of incarcerated trans people had been sexually assaulted while they were behind bars. That is about eight times higher than the general prison population. That risk of violence is why the transgender housing unit exists. But advocating for trans folks at Rikers to be housed there to begin with is often a hurdle. Perfect example, there was this person of custody who needed to get into safer housing because she was a victim of rape. And I just remember in the phone meeting I had with the staff to advocate for her, they were saying that she's aggressive, she's going to try and have sex with the women. This me on the call and like with the other folks being transphobic, there's no way that I'm going to get through these people and then they're going to get denied. And then what's going to end up happening is that they're going to stay in the facility. They were just experienced a rape. It may happen again or something worse can happen to them, which is a physical assault, dying, etc. It's really hard to hear that this is a reality Robin faced. And this was a reality for Kristen Lavelle, too. She was denied safety because of stereotypes. Nine times out of ten, you're probably the only trans girl in a dorm filled with guys. Threats of violence were constant, and there was no protection. It's dehumanizing. Then, like, when you're trying to shower, guys are going off because you're naked or because you're trans. She recalls one event where she was grabbed from behind. He snatched me up and he choked me out and threw me down the stairs. I had to get 13 stitches in my head. When I went to go seek help, the COs didn't respond. They didn't do anything. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, well, you're lucky you're not dead. And that's it. Kristen wasn't housed correctly. But when Tabitha Gonzalez was in Rikers, she was. And even so, there's no avoiding this violently transmisogynistic culture. When I was there, we had the, um, they called it homosexual house, homo house, or special housing later on, they would call it. You know, but wherever you went, 
Like you were there and the officers weren't friendly. They would make fun of you walking down the hallway. They make you feel like you're subhuman. Tabitha and Laylene were housed the same way. At different times, they both lived in the transgender housing unit. And while the unit offers some safety, it doesn't mean things were easy. Tabitha has thought about what life must have been like for Laylene while she was there. I can almost imagine how it felt for her to be locked down. And now you're in this place where you're being penalized for still being you. There's not a lot documented about Laylene's early days living in the transgender housing unit. We do know that two weeks after Laylene arrived at Rikers on April 30th, she had a seizure in her dorm in the middle of the night. Then a few days later, she had an interpersonal conflict with another inmate in her dorm. Within those units at the time, there was quite a lot of conflict. In the interviews I did, some of that was explained to me as a lot of people who wind up in those units know each other from various different communities. This is Kate McMahon again. She investigated Laylene's death for an oversight organization called the Board of Correction. Conflict can break out easily in any jail. But Kate's saying that there's a specific context for understanding issues in the transgender housing unit. The layers of conflict are complicated in a different way, maybe than in another dorm in general population. And for that reason, maybe can't be managed the same way and conflict can't be managed the same way. As a result of Laylene's conflict, she moved to the second of two transgender housing dorms. But Kate doesn't think that moving people around is the best solution because there are only so many dorms that are safe for trans people to live in at Rikers. So in and of itself, there's not enough resources and options to house people. Laylene's assignment to a new dorm, it's the first of several housing changes that she will undergo. It basically kicks off a process of elimination of where to place her. It's the start of a lot of instability. Two days after she arrived in her new dorm, she had another seizure. That's on May 4th. Then on May 6th, during a visit to the health clinic, Laylene ran into someone from her original transgender housing dorm. They had an altercation. One report written after Laylene's death says, according to the DOC inmate fight tracking database, she struck an inmate in the face without provocation, and the two engaged in a physical altercation. Both inmates sustained scratches that did not require additional medical attention. This is the information recorded by correction officers. But it's reasonable to have some doubt about the DOC's records. We've learned from our research and interviews that you can't necessarily take the DOC at its word. I honestly wouldn't trust all documentation. Um, you know, Here's former Rikers social worker Kel Savage again. So everything's handwritten. Everything's on paper. The system that they use is archaic. Kells worked closely with Robin, and they both saw firsthand how false information makes it into the documentation. 
we had this trans woman who was in general population and she was physically assaulted by seven women. And it was just because she was a trans woman. She didn't even fight back. We had video that showed how it started and officers tried to blame the trans woman saying that she started it. The officers blatantly lied. Some of that was just carelessness, honestly. Some of it was CEOs being pushed to the point of acting irrationally and not being reprimanded for inhumane treatment. Honestly, yes, CEOs can like either lie, omit information, forget information. I would trust no documentation at Rikers, none. And look, it's possible that Laylene started that fight, that it happened exactly like the DLC said it did. Because we know that Rikers is a really violent place. Fights are common and triggers abound, especially for trans people. The CEOs will pick fights with you. The inmates will pick fights with you. We asked Kristen Laval about this. I'm not trying to come in here every five minutes defending my existence. You know what I mean? Like, I am trying to go home, you know? Like, I'm not trying to sit up here and collect tickets to be fighting with people. Laylene was charged with violating the rules because of her fight. And on May 14th, almost a month after she arrived at Rikers, Laylene had a disciplinary hearing. Her punishment was 20 days in punitive segregation, better known as solitary confinement. But a punishment like this doesn't happen right away at Rikers. The sentence doesn't actually specify when it needs to be served. That depends on a lot of things, including how many solitary confinement cells are available. So Laylene goes back to her dorm in the transgender housing unit. And this is when we begin to see in the records that Laylene's mental health is suffering. After her hearing, she got into another fight with someone back in her dorm. An officer decided to refer Laylene to mental health services. They said on the referral form that Laylene was showing radical changes in behavior. I think back to that scene in Orange is the New Black, where Sophia Bursette is demanding medical attention. I'd like to report an emergency. She goes as far as swallowing a bobblehead, and that was an intentional cry for help. Laylene's situation likely was not, but I wonder how bad things had to get before Laylene was given the care she deserved. After her last fight, Laylene was able to speak with a counselor. Then, a clinician recommended that she be returned to her housing unit, but she wasn't. Instead, DOC transfers her somewhere new, somewhere called Transgender Housing Unit New Admissions. It's a bit of a mouthful, and it turns out it's not an official housing area. It's basically off the grid. And because of that, it's not subject to proper supervision. When Kate McMahon was investigating Laylene's death, 
even she had a hard time figuring out where and what this housing area was. It was an area that was supposed to be temporary. But part of our investigation was just really trying to figure out what is this unit? How do these kind of new admissions units function? What, if any, are the written policies around these units, of which there, there weren't any? This unit just popped up out of nowhere and was totally lawless. And somehow, this is a normal thing that happens at Rikers. At the Board of Corrections doing oversight, that was a constant sort of whack-a-mole. We have monitors who go into the shelves every day and would routinely find these new housing areas that we weren't otherwise aware of, but for the fact we happened to walk into them. That's sort of been an issue for oversight for a long time, is how to really regulate these units that just sort of pop up that may or may not ensure that people have access to the minimum standards that they're entitled to. On May 15th, a day after her mental health visit, Laylene woke up in this housing unit. But she didn't leave her cell for breakfast or any other services. She did come out when it was time to take medication but refused to take it. According to the Board of Corrections report, Laylene, quote, began rolling around on the floor in the day room, talking to herself and growling. I think it's otherwise clear that she was decompensating quite a bit as soon as she got to jail. This term, decompensating, refers to the process of a person losing their ability to regulate their mental health. Laylene had been in Rikers for about a month, and for the second day in a row, an officer flagged her mental state on a referral form. The officer circled the following, showing radical changes in behavior, expressing a desire to commit suicide and or attempting suicide, frequent displays of shouting, crying, and or screaming, having hallucinations, delusions, seeing objects or hearing voices that do not exist, showing poor personal hygiene or appearance, doesn't shave, wash, or change clothes, etc. Being alarmed, frightened, or in a state of panic, and unusual action or behavior that should be brought to the attention of the mental health staff. The officer also wrote in, inmate randomly crying, shouting. There are a couple of foundational mental health challenges for everybody inherent in mass incarceration. This is Dr. Homer Venters. He has worked in healthcare at the city's jails for nearly a decade and served as the chief medical officer for NYC's jails, including Rikers, up until 2017, just a couple years before Laylene was there. He's also the author of Life and Death in Rikers Island, which is an indictment of the dangers he witnessed there. People's mental health gets worse when they're put into violent, chaotic settings. And and jails especially are very violent and chaotic settings. The stimulus, the thing that's making things worse, is the setting itself. In the DOC's incident reporting system, there's a logbook entry from around the same time that says Laylene approached an officer 
with aggressive hand gestures toward the facial area. The officer extended her arm and ordered Laylene to stop. But Laylene moved forward and struck the officer on her forearm. Afterwards, Laylene, quote, was found sitting on the floor of the cell, refusing to engage with staff. She was transferred by mental health staff to Elmhurst Hospital, where she would spend nine days. Patients may go to the hospital for treatments or assessment that can't happen in the jail infirmary. And so at any given time, there may be two, there may be 20 people who are in Elmhurst, or they may even be at other hospitals. And then that room is going to have, if it's not a locked ward, they're going to have two correctional officers there for the whole time, probably, that they're hospitalized. Laylene was in the psychiatric prison ward at the hospital. And when she returns to Rikers, she's in a vulnerable position. She has already been moved into three different housing units and been in the hospital. She's fully entrenched in this chaos, and it's affecting her. Like Dr. Venter said, Rikers itself exacerbates mental illness. When people come into a jail or a prison, they're more likely to experience abuse, neglect, jail attributable death. The criminalization of sex work and the courts and the bail system, that's all led Laylene to this point. That's what put her here. And transphobia is all around her. Cops and judges and correction officers, they've all been exposed to narratives that dehumanize trans women. They've all seen movies and TV shows that show us solely as a stereotype. Hell, they're the stars of those shows, the heroes even. Trans people have been depicted as unworthy of being treated equally and as people who it's okay to cast away behind bars. They're more likely to have those things happen to them if they fall into these groups that security staff and even health staff view as non-conforming. So if somebody's LGBTQI, if somebody has a serious mental health problem, if somebody speaks up for themselves, there are all sorts of elements to a person's identity that can elicit worse treatment or worse care behind bars. Laylene ticked many of these boxes. She was even accused of assaulting an officer. Whether or not she was in the throes of a mental health crisis at the time, the people entrusted with keeping her alive may no longer be all that invested in doing so. I haven't reviewed any of the records in her case, but it has certainly been my experience that many of the jail attributable deaths that I investigate involve people that the, the security service had decided was a problem or was causing them headaches or shouldn't be trusted. And that is a problem. Laylene's death is what Dr. Venters calls gel attributable. She should have survived. It's Riker's fault that she isn't alive. That's next time on Afterlives. A medical doctor was asked, can this person be put in solitary? 
in light of their seizure disorder? And they answered yes. And to me, if anyone were going to be held criminally accountable for Leilene's death, that's the direction I would have looked. I remember the officer banging mad hard. And I went and looked up, and I don't think she heard any movement, but she was just like, oh, and kept walking. That's 41 minutes where no one's observing her, which is in violation of the segregation unit policy. Had that been the case, honestly think she would still be alive. Thank you so much for listening to Afterlives. You can find this episode and future ones on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. I'm your host and creator, Raquel Willis. Dylan Hoyer is our senior producer and script writer. Our associate producer is Joey Pat. Sound design and engineering by Jess Kreinchich. Story editing by Aaron Edwards and Julia Furlan. Fact-checking by Savannah Hugely. Our show art is by Makai Baldwin. Score composed by Wazi Murray. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Executive producers include me, Raquel Willis, and Jay Brunson from the Outspoken Podcast Network, Michael Alder June and Noel Brown from iHeart Podcasts, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley from School of Humans, and The Cats Company. School of Humans. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.